You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 26th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to a very special edition of The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Tom Edwards. This Boxing Day, we're taking a look back at the highlights from the big interview from the past year. Coming up on today's programme, from becoming Hong Kong's youngest legislator to living in political exile in the UK, we'll hear from trailblazing pro-democracy activist Nathan Law. Definitely the Beijing authorities closely monitoring my online activity or possibly physically following me. But I also don't have incidents of me spotting like agents around me. If I do, that will be a big news and I think that will be a extremely bad publicity for Beijing. Steve Earle, one of the most acclaimed singer-songwriters of his generation, discusses his new tour, play and his enduring hit, Copperhead Road. By the time I started writing things people referred to as political songs, I'd learned a lesson from Bob Dylan that he'd learned himself was that finger-pointing songs don't work. That's what Bob called them. And I've always tried to do that by assuming a character and trying to tell that character's story. And it's not always somebody I agree with. The former Prime Minister of Norway, Erna Solberg, looks back on her political career and the future of Europe's relationship with Russia. We have a coastline that if you control that... It's easy to control the entrance into the Atlantic ice-free harbor for Russia, the biggest naval base they have in our part of the world. In fact, the biggest they have. Their nuclear submarines are placed there, just on the other side of the harbor, meaning that we are placed in a very geographically important area for Russia. And best-selling author Malcolm Gladwell discusses his life, career, and his gripping podcast series, Revisionist History. People who didn't grow up in a religious community are very often shy about talking about religion and its effects and power. They don't like to admit they take it seriously. I don't have any problem admitting that I take religion seriously. All that coming up on this special edition of The Briefing with me, Tom Edwards. We begin the programme with Nathan Law, the youngest representative ever elected to the Legislative Council of Hong Kong and one of its last Democrats. In 2016, aged just 23, the former student activist won a seat as part of the party he'd founded, Demosisto. He was disqualified just 10 months later after refusing to swear allegiance to the People's Republic of China with appropriate solemnity. Now in political exile here in the UK, Law told Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller about his move to London and whether it makes him feel any safer. It's difficult to say that I'm completely safe because we all understand how extensive China's reach could be. But I think the raising awareness of China's global authoritarian expansion and how they well, operates outside of China. I think for now, especially the government is well aware of the fragility of Hong Kong exile activists. And for now, I am up for public events or give a speech in a protest and things like this. So I think that slight insecurity of mine is not going to stop me from continuing to advocate for what I believe and the rights of Hong Kong people. But genuinely, do you assume you're being watched or monitored in some respect? Yeah, I think at least 
definitely the Beijing authorities closely monitoring my online activity or possibly physically following me. But I also don't have incidents of me spotting like agents around me. If I do, that will be a big news, and I think that will be a extremely bad publicity for Beijing. So I think for me, I'm I'm being cautious, but they're also being quite cautious. It has been a very strange and very swift journey for you, really,、mm. from being born in Shenzhen not really all that long ago to being somebody who apparently the might of the Chinese Communist Party is terribly fearful of. But I, I, I want to go back a bit to those origins. I think I'm right in in researching that you you moved to Hong Kong when you were about six. Yes.、Um, At what stage did you start to get a sense that Hong Kong and China weren't quite the same places? That there was a different identity attached to each of them? Yeah, I grew up in a very humble background. I lived in public housing. My father was a construction worker. My mother was a cleaner. They didn't really talk much about politics or human rights to me. They were also from China, so I was growing up in an environment that didn't really. Spark my ideas of seeing Hong Kong or China as two different places or、mm. two different political identity, but I think throughout that time we also recognized there are a lot of differences between Hong Kong and China. Merely just living in Hong Kong, like we use different currencies, we speak different language, we use different characters, and we are much more internationalized. But it was up until when I first joined the candlelight vigil of the Tiananmen massacre.、Mm-hmm. In 2010, 2011, when I was in my high school, I started to realize that there's a big difference in the way that we see our government and how the Chinese government is behaving. We believe in division of power. We believe that people should have the right to speak up, but those are not the things happening in China. And even for the people demanding it, in 1989, they brutally murdered thousands or even tens of thousands of people. Uh, for now, we still don't really know the truth. What was happened in the Tiananmen Square? So that really gave me a big sense of a need to speak out in Hong Kong, and it was almost a coming of age experience of me. I will come back to that question of the need to speak up, but just an additional question about Hong Kong's identity, which. Is for all the reasons you've outlined, its differences in、yeah. in history and governance and economy, is different, I think, to China's. But do you think it will endure? Clearly, what China wants is to turn Hong Kong into just another Chinese、yeah. city. Do you think that can actually be done, though, or will Hong Kong's essential Hong Kongness always somehow endure? Well, I definitely believe that the Hong Kong identity will endure because of how tenacious we are. Overseas, Hong Kong communities are blooming, and we definitely have a separate history, separate understanding of the government than the Chinese identity. I'm not saying which one is better or worse. It's just、mm. different, and it is not right to kind of merge two different things together by force, by brutality, by erasing our uniqueness. And I think that is what Beijing has been actively doing in Hong Kong. 
and also in other parts of China, like Uyghurs in Tibet. You mentioned the obligation, the right, the feeling that you should speak up. And this is something I'm always interested in asking people who, much like yourself, find themselves in a position of being activists or running for office or or leading a movement. I think it's probably pretty much everybody at some point in their life has thought about a particular thing. This isn't right. Something should be done. But there are very few people who decide and I'm the person who should do it. You write in your book, and you've alluded to this in this interview, that where you grew up, as you put it, there wasn't much hope or feeling of agency. Have you ever understood, basically, from where you got the nerve to decide, I should do this, it should be me? Yeah, I I would say that I never got that nerve to really be 100% determined that I'm going to do it. There were lots of unexpected turns in my life that made me who I am today. I ran for student representative when I was in university, and that was exactly the year when the Umbrella Movement, the Multi Civil Disobedience Movement of Hong Kong broke out. And that was the reason why I became a public figure. If I enrolled in school a year earlier or a year later, I would probably be just an ordinary nine to five worker. It was just because I was in that year becoming that student representative. And at the beginning, my thought was, yeah, it was a one-year term. And after the term, I would fix my grades. I would go to exchange and maybe learn a new language. But all the things that really changed my life indeed was taking place in that particular year. That was Nathan Law in conversation with Monocle's Andrew Muller. Steve Earle, one of the most acclaimed singer-songwriters of his generation, had his 1988 signature Copperhead Road named an official state song of Tennessee. Earle visited the State House in downtown Nashville to receive the honour and to play Copperhead Road for the 113th General Assembly. During his performance, he advised the Assembly to listen to his song Devil's Right Hand, which addressed the subject of gun violence. Earle joined Andrew Muller in the studio to discuss the enduring impact of the song. I enjoyed the irony of it, but I also enjoyed the honor of it. Look, I'm 68 years old, so things sort of becoming, everything's becoming about legacy at this point. And, and I'm, I'm not, you know, a lot of people don't want to admit that, but I'm, I have no problem with it whatsoever. Somebody said, this was immediately after the same body had expelled two members mm-hmm. because they, it was, it was a demonstration on the floor, which, which was probably a breach of protocol, and it's happened. And normally you're censured for that, and they expelled the two people. And there were three people that they tried to expel, and the two that were expelled were black, and the one that wasn't had tenure and was white. And it was, you know, it stunk, and, and it was one of those things. And I had friends, that literally lefty friends that were like, they're wondering about me anyway, mainly because of the existence of my last record and a lot of other stuff, because I've said some stuff that freaks them out. But you're not going to accept that, are you? And I'm like, yes, I'm going to accept <laughs> it. Because, number one, I mean, I, I, I fully think, I, I looked on the website, and they print the lyrics out on the website. I think once they get the lyrics in the website and see them in black and white, there's going to be another move, and they're going to remove it. But we'll see what happens. But it was, my sister was there, John Henry was there. I played the song on the floor. And the two guys that, that actually sponsored this have been fighting these gun laws in Tennessee for a long time. And they, they, they both of them have really spoken out after that horrible shooting. And was, all this was in the aftermath of that. And then I said, I thanked everyone in the room because there were only four dissenting votes in the House. 
And they were more votes against the sponsor than they were against me. And they were it was unanimous in the Senate. And I thanked everybody for the honor, everyone that supported it, and the people that didn't. I said, but I would like to remind you there's another song on the Copperhead Road album that you need to check out. It's called The Devil's Right Hand. <laughs> well, so. yeah, I, I've seen the footage, which I think your sister shot, of you playing your Copperhead Road on the mandolin on the Capitol floor with a, a chorus of awkwardly bopping lawmakers surrounding you. It was uh, funny. <laughs> what was really funny was the Speaker of the House that came down with to get our pictures taken afterwards. And I leaned over and I said, he's really, really right wing and probably really hates me. And I, I leaned over and I said, you're a brave man. And he just didn't say anything. I said, I witnessed, personally witnessed Al and Tipper Gore levitating, avoiding having their picture taken <laughs> with me. Every new I didn't understand. Mama says a pistol is a devil's right hand. The devil's right hand. The devil's right hand. Mama says a pistol is a devil's right hand. The devil's right hand. The devil's right hand. Mama says a pistol is a devil's right hand. You mentioned The Devil's Right Hand, a song which I think I recall you playing the first time you ever came to Midori House. But the fact that you mentioned it in that context struck me as sort of a metaphor for your career as a whole. You're trying to smuggle fairly left-wing sentiments into not often left-wing audiences. If a single legislator went home and listened to The Devil's Right Hand, which is a great song, but what, what were you hoping they would take away from it? Well, I, one thing I hope they would take away from it is that it wasn't even an anti-gun song when I wrote it. It was just about guns. It was about things that I knew about guns and how destructive they could be. We, we should mention, yeah, it, it is not at all a preachy anti-gun song. It, it's quite fatalistic. I don't think that by the time I started writing things that people referred to, I still write more songs about girls than I do anything else. But by the time I started writing things people referred to as political songs, I'd learned a lesson from Bob Dylan that he'd learned himself was that finger pointing songs don't work. That's what Bob called them. And I've always tried to do that by assuming a character and trying to tell that character's story. And it's not always somebody I agree with. I had a whole trailer full of guns when I wrote The Devil's Right Hand. I, I grew up in Texas hunting and fishing, and I didn't, and I had handguns, and I owned an assault rifle at one point. It was just one of those things. I just went out and shot at cans with it, you know. It was just fun because it would shoot fast, and you could get them, so I got one. There was nothing incongruous about being a peacenik with an arsenal in your house in the culture I grew up in. Then Justin, when he was 14 years old, found a loaded gun that I didn't, had thought well hidden. All the other guns in the house were unloaded, locked up, but I was taught you keep one loaded to protect your family. And the police came to my house. They were looking for me. They were not, weren't much help, so I didn't depend on them. Justin found it, and he hid it in his room. And I knew he had it, and I couldn't get him to admit that he had it. I finally took him out to a wilderness camp in Hickman County next door. I'm not proud of this. They were hiring these kids out for slave labor to the state. But I didn't know what else to do. And I just made sure he didn't have the gun, took him out there, wrote them a check, and dropped him off. Now, it's January, and they're sleeping in the tent. So 3.30 the next morning, he called me and told me where the gun was. But I haven't had a gun in my house since. So now I play it, and I, I tell that story sometimes, and I just say, now when I play it, it's a, it's a gun control song. <laughs> and that's all there is to it. Well, him and my uncle tore that engine down. I still remember that rumbling sound. That was Steve Earle talking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. Mm-hmm. 
Erna Solberg served as Prime Minister of Norway from 2013 to 2021 and currently leads Norway's Conservative Party in opposition. Andrew Muller asked her to talk about her political career and to discuss the future of Europe's relationship with Russia. I started to be active in the youth movement of the Conservative Party just before I became 16, which was in the 70s. It was a very white and black political debate at that time among young people. It's uh, still the Cold War. It was still a lot of discussions on... Because just before, you know, you got this whole, what we call the conservative wave that you got in Europe in the late 70s and early 80s for more freedom and other things. And and I did this just for fun, for the activity. I never thought, at that time, I never thought I would be a politician. I, I never thought that until I was nominated to parliament, because even though I had been member of the city council, I mean, that's something you do on your spare time. It's not a, it's not a job. And I always thought I would have an ordinary job. But then somebody thought that I that I was a talent that they wanted to get into Parliament before I finished university. It's a question that I suspect may occur to a lot of people who live in uh, slightly less functional and orderly and wealthy countries than Norway, which is pretty much every country. Is there any amount of frustration at being a politician in Norway? Do you ever start finding yourself thinking, everything's kind of fine as it is, things more or less work? Is there really all that much for me to be doing? Well, I think you will find challenges in all countries. I mean, in Norway... I'm often asked why did, what was the issues I was concerned about when I was 16 and became political active. I was concerned about educational policies, women's rights, development in the third world. And I chose the Conservative Party because I believed that the ideology, believing in the individual, taking away restrictions, more freedom, would make it possible to become better on all of these issues. And I I still find challenges in this area. So when I was prime minister, I was working on education for girls around the world as part of our strategy. So I think you will always find things that you can get engaged in. And I think even though we are healthy, that um, there is for most Norwegians compared to the rest of the world, we are happy to born in this period of history and in our country. We still have young people falling out of our education system. We still struggle with people who have mental illness challenges, and we are going to solve the climate challenges of the world, which also means that Norway has to sort of restructure our economy in the future. This is another thing that may also seem different from inside Norway, but it's certainly how it seems from outside Norway. And this applies to, I I think, all the Nordic countries to a large extent, that your politics seems just a lot more collegial, friendly and bipartisan. After you lost the most recent election, you quite cheerfully said that you thought your opponent would actually make quite a good prime minister. Is that how it actually seems from inside Norwegian politics? Do you just put on a friendly face and behind that it's as rancorous and brawling and scheming and and nasty as everywhere else? I think it's nastier inside political parties. My party is quite peaceful these times. It's not always been like that. Now the Labour Party has had a little bit more of that, but it goes a little bit up and down. Of course, if you have success, it's better than if you don't have success. But it's, uh, no, I think it's important to remember that all the Scandinavian or the Nordic countries are quite small and we are quite heterogeneous. I think it's the divisions is not that big in our societies. And I think 
people also want us to be finding common solutions on the big issues. For example, we say that we have, it's, it's important for us that our foreign policy doesn't really change much. It changes a little bit, but not much between different governments because we are a small country and we should be relied on like that. So there are divisions inside, but most, I think most members of parliament, it would be people I would happily go out and have a glass of wine with and discuss issues with after a debate because usually most politicians are more social than the average Norwegian also because you, know, you have to transpire in a system that elects people who maybe are a little bit more outward spoken and things like that. But that, yes, it is nice. Like It's usually like that. Then you will always find some some people that you don't really want to take a glass of wine with because they are too, they can't relax after a debate. You mentioned foreign policy there, which does bring us to the inevitable. Norway is a country which does have a land border with Russia. People, I think, may tend to forget that because Norway seems, if you take the first glance at the map, quite a long way away from Russia. But you do have that border up in the high north. Has what we've seen Russia do over the last 18 months changed the way Norway thinks of its security, do you think? Or perhaps should it have changed the way Norway thinks of its security? We have been members of NATO since the founding of NATO. And that was our Second World War experience. We were neutral and we got occupied by Nazi Germany. And it comes back to one thing that I think Norwegians know, and that is that the strategic part of our coastline is extremely important. We have a coastline that if you control that, it's easy to control the entrance into the Atlantic uh, ice-free harbor for Russia, the biggest naval base they have in our part of the world. In fact, the biggest they have. Their nuclear submarines are placed there, just on the other side of the harbor, meaning that we are placed in a very geographically important area for Russia. So we know that their plan is if they ever come into a larger situation, they have this bastion defense system that they have, which will lock in Norway because they would try to control the North Atlantic part. Erna Solberg there in conversation with Andrew Muller. Finally on today's programme, Malcolm Gladwell, public intellectual and author of numerous global bestsellers, is well known to many. Malcolm Gladwell, the podcaster is a relatively new phenomenon. Monocle's Books editor Georgina Godwin sat down with him to find out more about his personality and whether being the child of a psychotherapist and a maths professor influenced his childhood. I am the child of two analysts, two very different kinds of analysts, right? They are both mathematics and psychoanalysis are analytic philosophies applied to certain kinds of problems. And so I got a little bit of both. I suppose that's one thing. And my parents were immigrants. My mom, you know, is Jamaican. I was an immigrant first to England and then to Canada. And my dad was an immigrant from England to Canada. In retrospect, that fact is probably the most important of my upbringing. I think there's just a tremendous, for someone who's going to kind of spend their life looking at a society and commenting on it, it's very useful to be an outsider. Mm. And that move from Britain to Canada when you were six, do you think that had a, a big impact on you, perhaps a bigger impact now when you look back? I think it does. I mean, I wonder whether it would have made a big difference had we moved when I was 15 or 12, you know, where I had spent a significant part of my 
educational upbringing in England, and I could have had, you know, a little bit of both um, and had stronger memories. You know, my memories of growing up in England are, you know, I have them, but they're not central to my recollections of my childhood the way my Canada memories are. Mm. What about religion? It was a religious household in a very religious part of Canada. Did that Mm. have a, a big effect on your thinking now? Well, sure. If you listen, revisionist history actually is mostly, you know, of all of the things I've done over the years, you see religious themes most often. I mean, I both sort of explicitly, I did a series on the Jesuits and the, the way they look at problems. And one of my most memorable episodes was one of the early seasons. We just went on a Mennonite pastor who had to make this choice between marrying his gay son and staying a pastor in his church. Um I just, I find the subject of faith to be, and its obligations, its attendant obligations to be both interesting, kind of intellectually, but also important. I think that those kinds of, those are very core questions that are essential to the way we kind of see ourselves. And I think people who didn't grow up in a religious community are very often shy about talking about religion and its effects and power. They don't like to admit they take it seriously. I don't have any problem admitting that I take religion seriously. You started work at at the Washington Post back in 1987. You went on to hone your style at the New Yorker. Do you think your younger self would have predicted where you are now? Well, every prediction my younger self made about my older self is proven wrong. So, (laughs) in fact, every prediction I think I've ever made in my life has been proven wrong. I don't make predictions. I don't really think about the future much. I'm convinced that it's foolish because, in fact, I, you know, even at Pushkin, I'm constantly objecting to budget forecasts, which I realize is is absurd because companies have to do budget forecasts. But my point is, they're always wrong. So why do we do them? Like, you know, it's like it's a pointless exercise. Why do we persist in trying to persist to predict a future that can't be predicted? So... No, I don't believe in that kind of stuff. So you have a child now, and I listened to a a very interesting podcast you were doing where you were talking about, you know, parents doing all of this research about what school their kid should go to and and so on. And you were saying it really doesn't matter. Has being a father changed you at all? I now have two children. Has it changed me? Well, I go out less, so... (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's changed me only in the sense that I'm... It's brought a great deal of happiness, unexpected happiness into my life. So in that sense, yes. Um, Has it changed my positions on parenting and child raising? I mean, I now have data, personal data that I didn't have before. Do I think that schools don't matter? Well, you know, it's never that, it's not that I thought that schools don't matter. Schools do matter. It's that I didn't think that parents were in a position to accurately predict what school would be best for their child. In other words, The thing about a school that makes it valuable to you is not something that either you or anyone else has access to at the point at which you're making the decision about what school to attend. It's random stuff. You know, what made my schooling really important was a couple of friends I made along the way who just happened to fit kind of perfectly into what I was, what I needed or didn't know I needed or, um, and relationships, chance sort of intellectual relationships with teachers who I didn't know, you know, when we moved to the community and the decision was made to move me to take me to a certain school or what have you, or who I chose the University of Toronto 
And there were some professors that I found very inspiring. I had no idea who they were before I went to Toronto. So I, I can't say that I chose Toronto because of the quality of the teaching. I didn't know how good the college, you know. I suspect that there are a hundred colleges in North America that I could have chosen where I would have found teachers with whom I would have had an interesting experience. And another hundred where I could have made friends who had a lasting impact on my life. I, but I, you know, in no case could I have predicted who those people would be or where they were. It's another instance of this kind of the folly of prediction. Why do we believe we can predict these things? That was Malcolm Gladwell in conversation with Monocle's Georgina Godwin. And you can find plenty more amazing big interviews with all sorts of extraordinarily influential individuals. Head to monocle.com or subscribe and follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. But that's all for this special Boxing Day edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb and our studio manager was Jack Dewars. The programme will be back at the same time tomorrow. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening. 